Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. How many of you have ever had the opportunity or the experience of feeling like you've sort of like graduated beyond something? And then like once you feel like you've really achieved it to realize that you haven't, you find yourself stumbling back into it. Let me give you an example. So uh, I surrendered my life to Jesus in 2003. So that's 20 years ago. And when I surrendered my life to Jesus, I was like, there's nothing else for me. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my Lord. I'm completely surrendered to Jesus. And then over time, I started to realize that there was sort of this competing loyalty. And the competing loyalty was this. Every time somebody would sort of like dismiss my opinion, I was asked for my opinion and you just dismiss it, I would get triggered, right? Be really angry, really upset because what I heard somebody saying to me, even if they weren't saying it is, you're not smart enough. And so if you've been here long enough, you've heard me talk about this. This is a, this is a thing, it's a theme. So, you know, a handful of years ago, I, I unearthed this reality that there's a part of me that needs some validation from people to tell me that I'm smart, that I actually have value because I have intelligence. And it's in competition with the gospel, right? The gospel says that I'm fully loved, that I'm uh, uh, completely valued, not because of anything I do or any ability I have, but because God loves me. And yet I find when I'm in these situations where people dismiss my opinion or in some way uh, devalue what I have to say, I get triggered and I live for this, this other God, lowercase g, this lesser God of needing people to validate my intelligence. You ever have things like that? Maybe it's not intelligence for you. Like maybe it's your, like, your worth as a worker. And I need people to acknowledge that I work really, really hard in order to be okay. Some of you are like, yeah, okay, I, I get that one. Or for some of you, it's like, I need somebody to tell me that I'm beautiful. It got quiet now. That, that got a lot closer to a lot of people, didn't it? And we wouldn't say this. We wouldn't say as followers of Jesus, I desperately need somebody to tell me that I'm beautiful. But there's something inside of us whenever we're made to feel, whether intentionally or not, that we're not attractive people, something inside of us gets stirred up. Am I right? Whether it's work, it's intelligence, it's beauty, it's any number of things, what we discover is that there are, even though we hold our relationship with Jesus so tightly, it's our most prized thing. There are these other things that catch us off guard. They surprise us. We find that even though we've said, yes, I live 100% for Jesus, we find that there are other things that are competing for our loyalties. There are other things competing for our attention and our affection. The biblical word for this is idolatry. Nobody wants to hear that. But the biblical word is idolatry. Let me just lay out what I think we're going to say, talk about today. My premise is this, that the whole of the Christian faith, the whole of the Bible is not aimed at making bad people good. It's not aimed at that. It's making idolaters into people who worship the one true God. That's the whole of the Christian faith. 
That's the whole of Scripture. It's not aimed at making disobedient people, or, or not even disobedient, but like bad-behavioured people good. It's aimed at making people worshippers of God as opposed to worshippers of other things. That's the premise for today and for every day. And you can, you can decide whether or not you agree with me or not, but what I think that that, that, that means about what we're doing here every single week is we're reminding ourselves again that we are worshipers of God, that we were actually created, built to worship God, and that everything else spirals our lives out of control. And so you can weigh that premise. We've been in this series uh, for most of the summer, since the beginning of June, through 1 Peter, that we're calling uh, Strangers in a Foreign Land, because Peter is writing this letter to these Christians who've been exiled to the furthest uh, reaches of the Roman Empire. And as, as they feel really discouraged, they've been cut off from their Christian brothers and sisters in their community. They've been sent out. Peter's concern is, I hope the gospel will continue to spread in this far off place, in this culture that's not supportive of your faith. And so last week I talked about how Peter tells the Christians, you need to be prepared to suffer well. And how anti, sort of like, comfort that is, right? We, we, are, we live in a culture that's very, very oriented towards comfort. And Peter is saying, you as a Christian need to be prepared to suffer well. And this week, he's going to talk about why. Namely, that there are idols that people worship, and you as a follower of Jesus are not to worship those idols any longer. I'm calling today's message, I want to be done with idols. And so we're going to pray and then we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, I do just thank you for all who were baptized. And I thank you, Lord, how you continue to draw people to yourself. That you continue to rescue people day in and day out from idolatry, from worship of other things. You continue to welcome people into relationship with yourself. And so I pray, God, today that as I speak, Lord, your heart would be communicated. Or would you fill me with your spirit? Would you put power on this message? Come, Lord. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter Chapter 4, we're almost to the end of the book of 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on either side. You actually get closer to the fan by going to get a Bible. So it will help you immensely. So if you never read a paper Bible, today can be your day. Um, 1 Peter, chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, here's what we read. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, 
so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to, each, uh, to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So up to this point, Peter has spent all this time telling these Christians how to basically avoid having undue scrutiny from those around. Because his, his whole hope is that the gospel will continue to spread. So as we've looked at over the past few weeks, he says, you know, live in, in, in agreeability or, or in some uh, form of agreement with all the things that you can as a follower of Jesus without compromising. So he says, slaves, be obedient to your masters. And we talked about how that sort of is like a very specific thing. Wives, submit to your husbands. All those things that he says. And what he's saying is, in this culture, don't shake things up unless you absolutely have to. Because if you shake things up too much, if you draw too much scrutiny to yourselves, it will squash the spread of the gospel. And so he says, be as agreeable as you can be. And what I told you last week is Peter says, well, that means you're going to have to suffer, though. At some point, you're going to have to suffer because you can't go along with everything. You've actually died to, to all of your old life. That's what we celebrated here today. This is demonstration of going under the water and death to everything that was before and raised to new life in Christ. That's the, the picture of going under the water is that I'm dead to everything that I used to be such that I am now alive in Christ. And what we said last week is to be baptized into Christ's death is also to be baptized into his resurrection, that we actually have a hope. And that's the therefore from our passage today, verse 1, where it starts with therefore. We don't want to just start there without any context. He's saying, because you've been baptized into the death and into the resurrection of Christ, arm yourselves with the same mindset Christ had. So what mindset did Christ have? What is his attitude? See, Jesus was committed 100% to the will of God. And he accepted the reality that that meant in some places you're going to suffer. And Peter says, you too need to be committed to that same thing. Commit to a life that worships God and expects suffering. Why should we expect suffering though? Why should we expect suffering for living according to the will of God. And the reason is because we refuse to worship the pagan gods that those around us worship. There's a piece here that you might miss. If you read this in Greek, it's really evident. But in verses 2 and 3, I'm going to read verses 2 and 3 again in English, and then I want to show you this wordplay that happens. Verses 2 and 3 go like this. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. The wordplay goes like this, though. In English, it would sound like this. As a result, they live the rest of their earthly lives for the will of God because they have spent enough time living for the will of the pagan gods. 
Peter says, you've lived enough time serving other gods. Now you serve the rest of your life for the true God. And the point that he's making is all these behaviors in verse 3 are not just some behaviors that he's like, hey, you should probably stop doing this. You could behave better. What he's saying is these behaviors are the way that you worship the pagan gods. He's actually making a reference to a feast and a festival thrown in honor of pagan gods. In the Roman Empire, it was your civic duty to participate in the festival of worship to the pagan gods so that it would, be, it would provide for the Roman Empire. It would make us all more secure and more safe. And so we all participate. And these celebrations are filled with all kinds of excess. You know, it's, it's excess eating, it's excess drinking. And if you do excess eating and excess drinking, ultimately comes excess violence and excess sexuality, which is where all of this shows up. And Peter sums it all up and he says, detestable idolatry. That's the whole idea here. He's not saying that eating is bad. He's saying eating in excess to a pagan god is bad. He's not saying drinking alcohol is bad. He's saying drinking alcohol in excess to a pagan god is a bad thing. He's not saying sexuality is bad. He's saying doing it in worship of a pagan deity is bad. It's detestable idolatry. But Peter says that these people have now committed their entire lives to the true God. You're no longer worshiping pagan gods. You are now worshiping the true God. And so these things are just out of bounds for you. You can't do them any longer because the choice that you've made is not to worship these gods, but it is to worship the God. Peter calls it detestable idolatry. In fact, you know, if you read through Scripture, what you find is idolatry is one of the most warned about things all through Scripture. It's over and over and over. The concern is idolatry. And the reason this is true is because every one of us is built to worship. Every one of us is built to worship. And if you don't worship the true God, you will worship a God of your own making. Or a God of someone else's making. You're built to worship. The only question you get is, what will we worship? John Calvin, some of you will know that name, uh, one of the reformers from the 16th century, he called the, the human mind a perpetual factory of idols. He said this, I, I have this quote up there that I want you to see. The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, these are big words, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity as it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance, its substitute vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils another is added, the God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol, and the hand gives it birth. I think we tend to have a lot more hope in our own personal ability to avoid idolatry than John Calvin or basically anybody of the last 2,000 years who has like studied and lived a life of faith. We tend to believe that we can avoid it. What's difficult for you and I, though, is we have a hard time identifying pagan deities, right? Like, not, nobody's, like, running around. I mean, well, some people, I guess, are. But we're, most of us are not running around fashioning statues that we're going to bow and worship, right? So we have this hard time going, well, you know, I don't really, um, I don't really sing songs to any pagan gods, and I don't show up to church and worship a pagan god, so I must not worship any idols. But the problem there is that we don't understand 
at its root what worship is. We have an incomplete understanding of what it means to worship something. At its root, the word worship means to ascribe worth to something. That we ascribe worth to something. What you worship, it's what you put your hope in. It's what you pledge allegiance to. It's what you look to for comfort. It's what you look to to take care of you. It's what you turn to whenever you feel insecure. It's what you turn to when you need to feel okay. That's the thing that you worship. You ascribe worth to something when you devote your time, your energy, and your money to it. Just think about where your mind goes when you don't feel okay. When you feel unsettled, where does your thoughts go? Where do you run to when you need to feel comforted? That's the God you're worshiping. It's the thing you look to for your ultimate hope. It's the thing you look to to make yourself okay. And as I started with at the very beginning, what I discover is even though I love Jesus, that I'm committed and devoted to the true and living God, there's sometimes inside of me this alternative God that I go to. That I run to this need for people to validate me. Say, you're a smart guy. And then I feel okay. And what I'm aware of, and what I imagine most of you are aware of, is that there are these places in us, despite our utmost desire to be wholly sold out to Jesus, there are these places in us that crop up, that show up, that we ascribe worth to. Because we're not sure God will take care of us. And at every point that we're doing this, we're worshiping an idol. Every time I run to something else to comfort me. Every time I'm stressed out and I'm like, well, I'm just going to run to the, you know, to the cake. Anybody else like cake? Every time I'm overwhelmed and I don't think I can cope with the pain that I'm feeling and I run to the liquor bottle. It'll make me feel okay. Every time I feel alone and I run to the pornography, because it will comfort me. Every time I feel rejected and I run to that thing that I need to make me feel okay, that's the God that you're worshiping. And what I imagine is probably true for most of us is that we're aware of some of those things. Because as Calvin said, we're a perpetual factory of idols. Every last one of us naturally goes there. Idolatry is anything that you worship other than the true God. And here's the, the kicker. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. Often, they're good things that have become the ultimate thing. I mean, think about parenting. You think parenting's a good thing, right? I love being a parent. Well, most days. Some days it's harder than others. Those of you who are parents know this. It's summer. You have more bad days than good days probably. You're waiting for school to start. Um, but parenting is a good thing, right? But when parenting becomes the ultimate thing, parenting is no longer a good thing. It's an idol that you worship. Marriage. Marriage is a great thing. I love the, the marriage that Jerry and I have. It's so life-giving to me. And yet, if it becomes 
the ultimate thing. It's no longer a good thing, it's an idol. Do you see this? It can be anything. Ministry, doing ministry. Some of you are like, oh, I really you do ministry. I love the ministry that I do. Doing ministry is a good thing, and yet when it becomes the ultimate thing, it's no longer a good thing. It's an idol. How much, how much bandwidth do you have for me to like press on something? Do you guys have, can we press this a little bit further? Feel free to say no. Loving where you live is a good thing, but when it becomes the ultimate thing, patriotism becomes an idol. I think that's important to note. I love living here, but patriotism can become an idol that I worship instead of the true and living God. All of these things are good things. One of the things that I always pay attention to, you know, it's summer. You know, we're right in the middle of wedding season. How many of you have gone to weddings already this summer? Like half the room, almost. I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration. How many of you have weddings yet to go to this summer, right? You, like, have to make that, like, budgeted thing, like, oh, you got to buy wedding presents, right? Make this line for your summer. But, like, we're right in the middle of wedding season, and there's a thing that happens every year. It gets to, like, be the first part of the year, and Jerry and I sit down, and we go, okay, how many weddings are we doing this summer? And how are we going to coach all of those people in premarital coaching? right? So how are we going to fit all of these meetings in and we're going to coach people? And it's really, I, I enjoy that part of it. I really do enjoy helping people walk towards marriage. But there's something I'm always paying attention to, always paying attention to. And that's how they think about what we're preparing to do, right? Have you seen this? Like people who are like just sold out on the wedding day, right? Have you seen this? These people that are like, I am prepared for the wedding day only, that's what I'm actually looking forward to. That right there to me is a big red flag. It's like, oh, this is serving something for you that only God can serve. That's a problem. Or sometimes we have folks that we'll talk to, and none of the people in this room, I have to say that, uh, some of the people that we end up talking to, and what we discover is that these people think that marriage is actually going to save them or fix them or make everything okay. Right? You have the, the, the bride who's preparing to get married, and she's like, if I can just get married, everything, I'll be validated, I'll be loved forever. I mean, you don't have to read far in the Bible to recognize that that's not a biblical thought. It's right there in Genesis. But I'll be loved forever, and I'll be whole, I'll be complete. Right? The Jerry Maguire line, I just dated myself, 96. Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You know this line? It's not a biblical thought. But you hear people say that in preparation for marriage. I'll be whole now. Or women who are going to marry a man and, and they're like, he'll change once we get married. No, he won't. He's going to be the same guy. Right? Or the guys who are dealing with like all kinds of sexual brokenness and they're like, if I can just get married, it'll all be okay. No, it won't. Marriage is wonderful, but it can't be your savior. Marriage won't set you free from sexual brokenness. It actually makes it worse. 
Marriage doesn't completely complete you when you feel incomplete inside. It only makes it worse because now you have this person who's so close to you, who's supposed to fulfill every need and desire you have, and it turns out they don't do it, and now you're so close, and it feels so far. Marriage doesn't fix you. It's a terrible idol, just like every other idol. They're terrible. They're not intended to save you. The problem with idols is that they never pay out what they say they will. They never never make good on the promises that they make. They always leave you wanting. If you serve this idol of beauty and you want people to notice your beauty, nobody can ever compliment you enough. It just doesn't happen. And the idol never pays out what you expect from it. If you make your job an idol and you're like, I really expect my job to fulfill me all the way. And what you discover is it doesn't matter which company you work for, which position you hold, how good of a company they are. They're in the top 100 best places to work in America. It never fulfills you. But it wasn't intended to. All of these things make terrible idols. Because they never serve you. So how do you know if you're worshiping an idol? How do you know? Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And if you've never heard of this book, I would highly recommend it. I think I have it. Do I have a picture of it? I think I have a picture of it. Maybe. (laughs) I don't don't know. I think that just validated something it shouldn't. Um, But this book called Counterfeit Gods, where, where Tim Keller talks about idolatry, and there's a test that he says in this book that I think is super, super helpful. How do you know if you're worshiping an idol? Imagine what happens if you lose it. If your marriage is an idol to you, what happens inside of you when it's gone? If your job is an idol to you, what happens when you don't have it anymore? If your kids are an idol to you, God forbid, what happens if they don't survive? It's normal when you lose something to grieve. That's normal. It's normal to feel sadness when something is gone. But when you lose an idol, life is not worth living any longer. That's how you test it. If I'm worshiping an idol, it makes life meaningless if I lose it. It makes me despairing. I can't imagine going on if I don't have it. Think about it in your own life. What are the things that you tend to hold on to pretty tightly? Is it your career? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your good looks? What happens when your good looks go away? I mean, you get plastic surgery, but whenever that doesn't work. If it's an idol, you can't stand the thought of living without it. And so if you discover that, some of you might ask, you know, well, okay, I've discovered that I'm worshiping an idol. I do hold Jesus dear, but I've discovered there's this other thing that I serve in my life. 
and I'm not sure what to do about it. What do I do? Scripture says, confess it to God, and you turn from the idol to worship the true and living God. You know there's not a Christian alive that could survive if God didn't have grace on us whenever we stumble. There's not one of us that could make it if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus who calls us back again and again and again. We discover that we're again stumbled into this idol and we're worshiping this thing. And Jesus says, come back. Come back. And you say, Jesus, I've been worshiping this thing. And I don't want to do it anymore. Would you forgive me? And then you turn to worship the true and living God. The reality is that every one of us, you and I, we're all tempted to worship idols all the time. Everything around us is calling for our allegiance, right? Everything wants us to, to bow the knee and worship it. Every single time, all around us. And there's people all around us that don't help us, right? There's people all around you who are like, oh no, you need to, you need to live into this. This is the right way to live. The pressure to conform is real, is it not? Everywhere you go, there's people who are like, oh, I've got an alternative way that we'll be happy. They don't call it an alternative way. When you choose to worship the true God and avoid worship of idols, though, this is where your suffering comes. When you say, I'm not going to worship that, I'm going to choose to worship God. That's where suffering comes. You know, some people like, they, sometimes Christians, we get in our own way. Have you noticed this? We face suffering because we tell everybody else how they need to live. And then we go, I'm suffering for Jesus. Do you know you don't have to do that? And that's not even what Peter is calling you to do. Peter is saying, if you will refuse to worship the idols that everyone else worships and instead choose to worship the true and living God, that's antagonistic enough. If you will live yourself wholly devoted to the worship of God and refuse to bow the knee to anything else, that'll be plenty antagonistic enough. I think part of the reason we've gotten ourselves in trouble in the church as of late is that we tell other people to live a way of worship that we don't live ourselves. And then you're not exactly suffering in the way that Peter calls you to suffer. We only need to be committed to doing the right thing. So what does it look like? I'm going to bring this to a close. What does it look like to be committed to a life that worships God? Let's read again from verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to, each, to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So what is a life that worships God. It certainly includes showing up and worshiping here. It includes singing songs of worship to God, but it goes so far beyond that. You know, if this takes an hour and a half every Sunday, if this occupies an hour and a half of your week every Sunday, do you realize that that's less than 1% of your week? It's hard to call that a whole life that worships God. It has to extend beyond that. 
But what does it look like? How does it touch every aspect of life? How many of you have heard of Augustine of Hippo? Or Augustine, some of you may have heard it that way. In the 5th century, there was this early church father called Augustine or Augustine who said something that Martin Luther in the 16th century repeated. And what he said is, sin is life curved in on itself. That sin is really just human life that's not directed appropriately. It's curved in for itself. What they're saying is, sin is living for yourself. It's making yourself God and yourself the end of every service act that you engage in. And so what Peter says here is he says, if you want to live a life of worship to God, that life is actually supposed to be lived outward, aimed at God and aimed at other people. That's how life is supposed to be lived. And actually, a few weeks ago, Evan talked about that in 1 Peter 2. That's actually what Peter is saying there. That the way life is intended to be lived is outward toward God and to other people. But here's the deal. You can only do this if you've surrendered your life to Jesus. And I'll tell you why. Look at the things that he says. This is how you, how you worship God in your whole life. He says, be self-controlled so that you can pray. That's aimed at God. Live one, love one another deeply. It's aimed at other people. Offer hospitality to one another. Focused on other people. Use your spiritual gift to serve others. It's focused on other people. Speak and serve on behalf of God. That's from God to other people. It says direct praise to God. That's also focused on God. Do you know this is impossible unless you've surrendered your life to Jesus? Let me explain why. Unless you know that you are completely loved by God, that you are completely valued by God, that you don't need somebody else to give you worth and value, that Jesus himself has died to make the, the gap between you and God no longer existent. Unless you know that, you're always gonna need other people for your own validation and your own purposes. You then become God and you use other people for yourself. Even when you serve other, this is the, the problem I have with, with the humanist perspective. Some of you are like, I don't know what that is. That's okay. It's people who think that humans are naturally good in and of themselves. The problem I have with the humanist perspective is that we'll serve other people and pretend that it's altruistic, but what we actually want is validation from other people that we are generous that we actually want validation from someone else, that we're servant-oriented people. And if we don't get that, we don't do it. The only way you can do these things that Peter says to do is that you are surrendered to the reality that God loves you, that you have ultimate worth and value because Jesus has paid for you, and that you have relationship with God. The only way you can love people this way is because you don't need anything from them. When you need something from them, it's really hard to love them in a pure way. That's the way forward. And if this is where you're at, it's an indicator that you serve an idol. And that idol may be you. In our culture, we've made ourselves into idols. And everything is oriented to serve me. It's all about me. What do I get out of it? And if you find yourself asking that question, it may be a little warning light 
that there's an idol to deal with. And if you discover that this is you, today there's an invitation to surrender that to God. Say, Lord, I have lived my life serving an idol and I've become aware of it now and I don't want it any longer and I'm going to turn from it and I'm going to worship you. That invitation is open to you. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.